0: Castaway Show with Dave Dolan. Hello Anza, you're listening to 963-K-O-Y-T, Coyote Radio, your local station right here in Anza. You just tuned in to your source for fishing reports and information, I'm Dave Dolan and I'm here with the Castaway Show. Hope you'll stay with me, give you your fishing reports, where they're biting, how to catch them, got a new uh, topic for you to. Talk about tonight. Got a recipe and we'll do some boating tips too. Like to hear from you out there. You can contact us by email at programming at 963KOYT.org or you can give us a call at 763KOYT. The numbers on that are 763 5698. We'd like to hear from you. If there's anything that you would like me to cover sometime, if you got some questions, Or if you'd like to come in and join me sometime in the studio, maybe talk about your favorite fishing story, like to do that too, so feel free to contact us here. Hope you'll stay tuned now, and together we will cast away. Well everybody, if you've been outside, you know we're definitely in a spring mode right now. Day's getting longer, quite a bit warmer, and things are changing around on the fishing scene too. Got to talk about the trophy fish that was caught this last week. This was down at Miramar Reservoir down in San Diego County. There was a 14.8 pound bass landed there. That is the biggest bass of the season that's been landed. It was a fisherman that over the last four years, each of these last four years, he's caught a bass in double digits. So he really has that lake figured out. I'd also like to ask if there's any uh, people out there that are big on bass fishing, contact me, maybe uh, come into the show and we can talk about that. Of all the fishing I like to do, I've got to admit, I'm not a real big freshwater bass fisherman, but I know that's really big around here. In fact, Southern California is probably the capital of the whole US as far as the big bass fishing. So if you've got any bass fishermen out there, get in touch with me and we'll talk about it on the air. Going down the hill to Diamond Valley Lake, the bass down there are kind of in a pre-spawn mode. I expect that they will start picking up and biting here pretty soon as they move into the shallows. It's real good for striped bass, stripe bass fishing down there right now, and uh, a lot of that has been kind of wind dependent. F- for some reason the last couple of weeks there's been some wind down there, and it seems like the days the winds blow it kind of shuts down the bite, but um, you know, with the spring weather that wind should calm down and maybe get a better striped bass fishing bite down there too they are getting big bluegill down there up to a pound and a pound and a half right around any one of the three dams down there from the shoreline would be a good place to do that down at um, paris lake that's been real good on the uh, bass fishing there too doing real well on three to four pound bass mainly on the uh, east end of the reservoir they're using a lot of crankbaits down there and some other baits i don't know a whole lot about, so I would like maybe a bass fisherman to come in here and clue me in on it sometime. They're also doing real good on the bluegill along the shoreline too. Also down the hill, Lake Skinner, they're doing really good on the striped bass. They're getting them down there up to six pounds. Actually the uh, key to fishing down there right now, they tell me that anything around Launch Ramp 2 is producing just about everything in the lake there right now, striped bass, large mouse baths, and also they're getting trout up to four pounds there, and the occasional catfish, and seems like it's all happening right around that launch ramp too. Once again, down on the uh, west side of the hill from us, Lake Elsinore. Now, that is really a bright spot for us this season. You know, over the last few years, if you drove by Lake Elsinore, that lake has looked pretty pitiful. The water has been down extremely low. Because it's so low in the summer, it gets really green and um, didn't look too appetizing. But with all the rain that we've had this year, and there's still water going into it, and I know that it's almost into the spillway channel right now. So Elsinore is turning into a really good alternative for us. A nice thing about it is that the uh, city of Lake Elsinore is, is getting active in it to try to promote the fishing there. This last week, they stocked 4,000 bluegill and 1,600 crappie down in the lake, mainly around the La Laguna Resort area, and they promised that they're going to do more this summer since the conditions are so good. Now, Lake Elsinore, it's the largest freshwater natural lake in Southern California, so it looks like it's going to be a good option for us. Going down the hill down the east side, down to Lake Cahuilla, the desert side from us, they're still having really good trout fishing down there. They're getting trout up to 7 pounds. They're still on a, a every other week's stalking schedule right now down there, so there's plenty of trout in the lake. But I was just down in that area, down in the Palm Springs area today, and it was 90 degrees down there. With air temperatures like that, that water's going to warm up. And once the water starts getting warmer, they won't be stalking any trout down there since the trout are a cold water fish. So it's a really good option we have to fish there. But if you want to do it, I'd get down there before too much longer, probably before about the end of March or so, because once they start stalking them, the few trout that's left are going to be really deep. When it comes to our mountain lakes, um, Hemet Lake and Lake Cuyamaca down in San Diego, I didn't have any reports out of them this week. So um, I do know they have been on pretty regular stocking schedule, and they're up a little bit higher elevation, both of them up over 4,000 feet. So I would expect that you know the trout fishing will last quite a bit longer down at both Hemet and cuyamaca Just last week I drove down to San Diego, and a, another real bright spot for us is the, the Interstate 15 bridge crossing Lake Hodges. Well, the last several years. It wasn't crossing Lake Hodges. It was completely dry down there. In fact, there was a forest growing down there. Well, guess what? From all the rain that we've had, there is now water underneath the I-15 bridge. The water in Lake Hodges has gone up under the bridge again for the first time in several years. Now, all those trees that were in the water, that's just good coverage for fish. So, if you're down there and you've got a smaller boat, and once again, if you're a bass fisherman, which I don't know a lot about, I would look for some really good bass fishing down there. Looking up at the high Sierras, I know that well. it's still kind of the same story. There's about 40 feet of snow on the ground up there. I was really looking forward to getting up the Sierras in June, but I'm just going to scratch that trip because there just won't be any access to the the lakes I like fishing up there, just the drive-to lakes. They're still probably going to be snowed in. And um, talking to some people I know up there, he said, once that snow starts to melt, it's going to be nice. It's going to fill those lakes up really good, but the water's going to be running so turbulent and so fast that it's going to make it a later season up there. But what they told me, it's going to be a phenomenal fall. I do know there was a, um, the Blake Jones Trout Tournament, which has been going on. This would have been year number 50 this year, down in Bishop. It was canceled because the water is running so high and so fast This is kind of a benefit tournament for kids. They were just afraid if a young kid fell in the water, they probably would not have a good outcome. So anyhow, the Sierra fishing will be there for us, but look for a later season. Looking on the uh, saltwater scene, the landings here that are closest to us, that would be the uh, San Diego, Mission Bay, Oceanside, and Dana Point landings. Now that the uh, rock cod fishing has opened up, There's a lot more people going down there. They're doing real well on it too. Most of the boats are reporting anywhere from six fish per person up to full limits on the rockfish. These are really tasty fish. Those fish are in that deep, cold water. They make really good table fare, and I sure like them for fish tacos. So that pretty much wraps up our fishing reports for what we have locally here right now. It's really turning on in the freshwater scene, and the saltwater is picking up too. As long as the weather cooperates, I look for a lot of good things to come. Well, everybody, just this last week, we changed to daylight savings time and the days have been getting longer. And then with that time change, we got so much more sun later in the afternoon. And whenever um, we get to longer days, it makes me think about my favorite place in the whole world I've ever gone to. We may have long days down here, but I'm talking about the land of the midnight sun, Alaska this has got to be the ultimate road trip that i've ever taken and it's my favorite place in the world now first of all we're talking about a very big area if you put a couple maps if you could put a map of alaska over the united states it would literally stretch from coast to coast pacific to the atlantic border to border canada to mexico the place is just bigger than life is the only way i can describe it so I'm not gonna get it all in in one show here, but I do wanna talk about one of the areas that we've gone to. Now, ever since I was about 20 years old, I always wanted to do my dream trip of going to Alaska. But it ended up that most of my adult life, I was working in the swimming pool business, self-employed, and when you have your own business in swimming pools, you just don't get to take summers off. And that meant I didn't get to go to Alaska. Well, four years ago, I sold my business, Short time after that, my wife called it a career. That was the end of May. Two weeks after that, we had the RV hooked up. We hit the road, and we were on the road for three and a half months. We drove up to Alaska. I often, when I'm talking to my friends now, I say, if I start talking about Alaska and get going and going, like I probably will right now, I just tell them, you know, if I get talking too much of Alaska, about Alaska, just tell me to shut up, and I will. But once I get going on it, it's such a phenomenal place, I just can't quit talking about it. So anyhow, there's kind of like two different Alaskas. The one Alaska would be Southeast Alaska. That's what goes down along the coast. And actually, it's, it's just kind of like the west coast of British Columbia. That's where all the water is, well, all the water the coastline, a lot of water too, being there's a lot of rain. And then there's what I call the mainland Alaska or interior Alaska, that's the big part of Alaska. Now, it's almost like there's two different cultures, two different sets of people in, from Southeast Alaska to interior Alaska. I talked to people in Southeast Alaska that lived there all their life that had never been to Anchorage. Southeast Alaska is very isolated, you can only get to it by boat or an airplane. I also talked to people up in the interior Alaska that said, Oh, you know, southeast Alaska, that's not Alaska. That's that's just uh, northern Seattle or, you know, part of British Columbia. They ought to move the capital from Juneau up to Anchorage, you know, because that's where we all live. So it's kind of like a little culture um, battle between the two of them. I do know that I've talked to a lot of people in the past that said, Well, you know, I've seen Alaska. I've been up there on a cruise ship. Well, you know, Cruise ships are nice. I've done a couple cruises. I'm Personally, I'm not real big on them, but I know a lot of people really do enjoy them. And it is one way to see part of Alaska. But um, on a cruise ship, all you're going to see is three different ports making eight-hour port calls. And um, basically, that's just it, southeast Alaska. I know when um, I was in Seward, Alaska, I talked to a local there. There was a cruise ship that came in. And he told me, he said, well, you know, he'd lived there all his life. He says, well what these people don't realize on a cruise ship is about Alaska. If you looked at your hand, and your hand was Alaska, all these cruise ships are seen as like the tip of your little fingernail. It's really so much more to see. And you will see so much more of it if you drive up there. But then again, you're talking about a major commitment. We took three and a half months doing it. On that first trip, we drove 10,850 miles. Alaska is a long ways up there, and once you get there, the distances are so big too. And to see the different sites you want to see in Alaska, you may be talking Denali, Dawson City, the Klondike, going down the Kenai. That's almost like saying, well, you know we're in San Diego right now let's let's drop by Tucson and while we're at Tucson, let's go on up and see Salt Lake City. You're talking those kind of distances up there, so you got to plan your trip out accordingly. But I do know that if you do drive up there, that, well, the Auto Club, they call this trip the ultimate road trip. You'll see things on there, just unbelievable sights, but I will say it's not for the faint of heart either. You're going to go long distances in some really big country. You're going to see grizzly bears alongside of the road too, so, um, you know, just beware. But it is drivable in any car. Anybody could do it. If, but then again, you do have to have the time for it. I do want to talk maybe tonight just about uh, Southeast Alaska first, and then some of the fishing that you can be done up there. Now the only way to get to Southeast Alaska is by boat or plane. There are no roads that go to it, and once you're there in the towns that are in Southeast Alaska, a lot of these towns, the only road may go five miles one way, five miles the other, and that's it. So you're really isolated right down there. One way I really enjoyed Southeast Alaska is, is well, I flew up there on one trip, and I got on the Alaska Marine Highway. Now this is literally a highway by boats, and it's the way people get around in Southeast Alaska. These boats are run by the state, and um, you know if they need something in some town, if they need a tractor from one town to the other, it goes on the Marine Highway ferries. People that go up north in an RV, they sometimes will load their RV onto the marine highway, and they'll start at the south end, then get dropped off at the north end of it, then start their drive. That does eliminate a lot of driving miles, but it's pretty expensive putting an RV on there. So, but anyhow, um, I've actually driven the Alcan twice. We did it in the year 2013, and we did it again this last year in 2016. You know, that's the driving trip where we saw the interior Alaska. But in 2015, I went to a resort up there, and I flew into the resort, but instead of um, just doing the three, four days, three days, four nights, three days of fishing, what I did is I flew into uh, one of the small towns up there, and I got on that marine highway, and basically I just went hopping around to different towns, spending three, four days in each one, and uh, it was really interesting. I... Um, went to Ketchikan, Alaska, got on the Marine Highway, went from there to Wrangell, Alaska, from there to Petersburg, Alaska, from there to Juneau, which is the capital, and then on down to Sitka, Alaska, where the um, lodge was, where I met up some buddies and did a fishing trip. It's really neat because um, Sitka, Alaska, that is the Russian Alaska there. You see a lot of the churches with the onion domes. There's a lot of Russian culture there. I went through the old cemetery. You see Russian writing on the, on the gravestones. Really an interesting town where there's a lot of history there but you know with the Russian settlements. Another interesting place was Petersburg, Alaska. They call Petersburg the Little Norway. you see some people in the traditional Norwegian outfits? A lot of uh, architecture in the buildings there that remind you of Norway really a neat little town i was also in ketchikan alaska that's kind of like the totem pole capital of alaska really a neat place but one thing about ketchikan that's even more so than the rest of southeast alaska is it's going to rain on you there now all of southeast alaska it's basically it's a, a temperate rainforest there but ketchikan is the capital of all of the rain Ketchikan, the well, call it a city. It's a town, four or five thousand people there. Excellent fishing there too. They receive an average of fifteen feet of rain every year. That's hundred and eighty inches. So if you go there, you're going to get wet. But I noticed, you know, going around town a little bit, the boys were out playing little league baseball. Construction workers, you know, it was raining. But you know, if you stop when it rains, you're not going to do anything. So the rain doesn't slow them down much. I know, uh, being from Southern California, I was walking around the town there when we had a little bit of a break in the rain. And, um, you know, I had a short sleeve shirt on, and I was at a street corner, and a lady looked at me. She goes, uh, you're not from around here, are you? And I, she looked down at my tanned arms, and I said, oh, geez, how'd you guess? And she goes, well, up here in Ketchikan, we don't get suntans; We rust. So anyhow, it'll be ready for it. But it is just gorgeous around there with all the greenery. Now, the fishing resort I went into in Sitka, it's pretty typical of most of the resorts you can fly into in southeast Alaska, and just about every town of any size up there, it's based on fishing, and you're going to have probably several fishing lodges that you can go into. And they're all pretty much the same as far as the way they operate. You're going to have to get in there by airplane, unless you do like I did and come in by airplane and go hopping around in all the different towns on the boat, but um, most of the people, what they'll do, they'll fly in and you're going to have maybe a four to five day fishing package with three to four days of fishing. They take really good care of you. I mean, the lodge that I was at and I know the other ones too, they feed you excellent. Most of them have um, nice cabins or condo-type um, bedding for you really nice they take care of you you don't have to show up with any rain gear any fishing gear they furnish all of it then they all have their own fleet of boats you'll go out and the main target they're going to have is salmon halibut and then your rock cod fishing now salmon fishing in all of alaska and i'll talk about it some other show about the interior it's all very seasonal you know they they have phenomenal runs of salmon up there but it may only be three or four weeks long you know this the chinook salmon maybe 3 weeks in june the coho salmon 3 weeks in july and then the sockeye come in for 3 weeks in august so if you want to catch a king salmon you go up there at the wrong season you're not going to get a probably not going to catch a king salmon so um it is pretty dependent on the calendar when you go up there but as long as you get out on that boat you will catch fish up there just an example of it i like to tell you about is the group I met up there in Sitka, you know, we all went out for three days of fishing up there. One partner of mine caught a nice little halibut, 360 pounds. That thing covered the whole back deck of the boat. What a fish that was. We also had our fill on that trip of plenty of of the rock cod, lean cod, big other big halibut, none of them 360 pounds. And we were also there during the Chinook or the King Salmon run, so it was an excellent trip and um, this is pretty much the way you're gonna fish if you go to Southeast Alaska. Now I just told you all the benefits, all the good things about it. Well, one thing is about it, fishing this way and it's pretty typical for all of Alaska. You know, it's a short season and Alaska is expensive. If you go into one of these lodges in Southeast Alaska, say for a four days, four nights up there, three days of fishing, when you include you know your flight up there, the cost of the lodge, which is all inclusive, you throw in your tips and all, you're probably gonna be at about $1,000 a day. So it's not cheap, but it's a great experience up there in Alaska. It may be something you have to save for for a long time, but if you ever get a chance, you gotta do it. It's just big country up there, it's bigger than life, and it's a really great fishing experience. But besides just the fishing you know if you're in places like sitka you've got the russian villages the the norwegian villages and you're going to meet some really extraordinary people up there so well i said earlier i have to tell my friends if i start talking about alaska just tell me when to quit because i can go on and on well okay it's time for a recipe here on today's show and um, talking alaska guess what i've got a salmon recipe for you Now there's um, several different types of salmon. There's the chinook, king salmon, the coho, the silver salmon, pink salmon, which is what you usually get in a can, and my favorite, which is the sockeye, the red salmon. To see the sockeye filet, if you've seen it in a store, it just doesn't do justice to it. Because I've caught these fish. You filet them out. The filet of this sockeye salmon is the deepest red almost an orange fluorescent color. It's just almost too pretty to eat. But anyhow, um, recipe I have for you here is smoked sockeye salmon. What I like to do when I uh, smoke the sockeye, I like to save the fillets for my other regular recipes, but I like to get the belly and the collar of the salmon for smoking. Now, that may not sound good. Ooh, I'm eating a fish's belly. Well, not the guts, but just the belly meat around there, the belly and the collar. Well, they aren't the prettiest cuts of meat, but that is where all the fat is concentrated, and that's what gives it the deep, rich flavor. What I'll do with the bellies and collars, I brine it overnight. Get a, a big container of water. A lot of people like to just put a lot of salt into brine, but what I like to do is either use some mesquite or teriyaki marinade in there. That's got the salt in it, but it's not as salty as just a bunch of salt, and it adds some flavor to it. After brining it overnight, the next morning I like to get these uh, the bellies and collars, I like to coat them with some garlic pepper. Then I like to get some, the uh, raw sugar, the coarse sugar, and just a little bit of sugar, kind of uh, coat it a little bit to give it a little bit of sweetness. That's all I do to it. Then I put it in the smoker. What I like to smoke it in is is uh, mesquite wood chips. It's just a natural for, sa- for uh, sockeye salmon. I think the key to it also is don't over smoke it too long in there. You want to give it kind of the consistency of texture of of ham, something that's... what you don't want to do is smoke it so long that you turn it into jerky. Now salmon jerky, I'm sure it tastes good, but uh, to me what you want is smoked fish and not just a real coarse jerky. I can assure you if you use this recipe on the sockeye salmon, smoke it in mesquite, this salmon will taste almost candy sweet. It is probably my favorite smoked fish I've ever had. So anyhow, try this one with your sockeye salmon and it's a great recipe. I can guarantee you it won't last for long. Okay, I've got my boating tip for the the show here. My tip for this one is about launching your boat. And I wanna stress the need to practice doing this before you ever go to a boat launch. If you got a boat on a trailer, you wanna practice a lot. And um, I'll tell you, one of the best forms of entertainment I think I've ever seen, go down to the San Diego Bay, the Shelter Island Boat Launch. It's probably one of the busiest boat launching ramps, well, in Southern California. Just get a lounge chair in the the shade and just watch people launch their boats. It's, uh, oh boy, some of them definitely should have practiced before they go there. In fact, one time when I was there, there was a group of people up there from a boat club, and they were all sitting there in their lounge chairs. And, you know, when you see the ice skating competition, after the skating, they hold up a number like a 10, a 9, a 7. They were holding up numbers for the people, how good they were at launching. Well, there were a few 10s out there, but there were a lot of 1s and 2s. So what you want to do then is... Before you ever launch a boat, this is mainly for somebody that's new to boating and maybe getting your first boat that's on a trailer, go out in a parking lot and practice this. You want to do this without anybody around. You, want, you don't want to practice at a boat launch because you've got people waiting to get in there. You want to get in, get out, get the job done. Now this may sound kind of crazy, but the bigger your boat, the easier it is to launch it. They turn so much easier. My 25-foot boat is a whole lot easier for me to back down and launch than if I get like a 12-foot boat on a small little trailer. Those things just drive me nuts trying to do it. So so the bigger the boat, the easier it is to launch. I just got to tell you a couple things I've seen at the boat launch ramp. Just uh, let's call it the launch ramp follies. One time I went to go launch my boat, and um, there was a guy, he was sitting up there, and his boat was tied off on the dock, and his trailer wasn't anywhere around. And um, he didn't look too happy. And I was ready to back my boat down to launch it. And he goes, uh, hey, bud, um, don't launch your boat over on that side of the ramp. Of oh, the ramp, And I go, well, how come? And he goes, um, my trailer's on the bottom. I tried to figure that one out. What he must have done is unstrap the boat, but then he pulled the pin out of the hitch and just backed down. Well, the boat floated, and the trailer went to the bottom. So, that's one that I saw. Another one I saw one time down at the Shelter Island ramp, a guy comes in by himself in an SUV, pulling, oh, about a 20-foot boat, and I knew he was in a hurry the way he pulled in so fast, backed it down real quick, he jumped out of that SUV, jumped in the boat, started the engine. Funny thing is, he uh, must not have had it in park and set the brake. As soon as that boat engine started, the whole thing vehicle included, slipped right down into the water. I'm talking that brand new looking SUV, completely submerged in salt water. You'll have a good time explaining that one to the insurance company. No, I talked to another one. I once talked to a mechanic and he said that he got a call from a customer that, well, he needed assistance down at the boat ramp because he just couldn't get his boat to go fast enough. It just wouldn't develop power or speed. Well, the mechanic took one look at it, went around the boat and he said, well, you know what? Your boat would go a whole lot faster if the trailer wasn't still attached to it. So that's one thing you don't want to forget. Unstrap your boat when you put it in the water. So, but the best one I think I ever saw was down at the Shelter Island launch ramp. This big motor home comes in pulling a very big boat, which looked like it was just barely trailerable. I mean, they, I don't even know if they were legal as long as they were. But anyhow, they pull in there to back down their boat, and the husband jumps out and he puts his wife at the steering wheel to back down. Well, the wife starts to back down, she kind of jackknifed the trailer a little bit, so she pulled up ahead and I don't know if I would have even wanted to try to launch this one, but she backed down, it didn't work, and all of a sudden the husband yells at her and she tries again, and the husband yelled at her again and tried again. About the third time, he yelled, you blankety-blank. Blanket. Well, at that one, that was enough. The wife jumped out of the out of the motor home. Her husband was standing down by the water. She goes up nose-to-nose with him, and she says, you launched the thing yourself, and she got the, the keys to the RV. She threw them out in the water. She went storming off, and... Um, who knows, maybe it was to the divorce court lawyer. I just know I wouldn't have wanted to have been around him at the table that night. So anyhow, those are some of my launch ramp follies that I've seen. So my boating tip here for this show is, if you're, if, especially if you're new, you get a new boat, whatever, practice launching that thing, practice backing it up and turning it in a big parking lot before you go to the launch ramp. Well, Anza, I've enjoyed bringing this show to you and I, I really love talking that Alaska. I know on the show tonight, I mainly just talked about um, Southeast Alaska and just kind of hit the high points of it. And believe me, Alaska is a whole lifetime experience. If you can ever get up there, way even if it's just a short cruise ship, but if you ever get the chance, do it. It will completely change around your whole outlook on what the outdoors is. So... I, in a future show, I want to talk a little bit more about fishing the interior of Alaska, which is completely different than what it is down in the southeast. So we'd like to hear from you here. Remember, we're at 763-K-O-Y-T, that's 763-5698, or email us at programming at 963 Love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the show or what you'd like to hear about or if you'd like to come in and talk. So until the next show... I hope that you have a good time on the water and someday together we can cast away